ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. It may come as a surprise to some people, but debates over intelligent design aren't just between people who believe in God and people who don't. And some might also be surprised to find out these debates have been going on a lot longer than they thought. Centuries longer, actually. Well, today on ID the Future, John West takes us back to the earliest days of Christianity as he speaks on the debate over design in the early church. Dr. West is the vice president of the Discovery Institute and managing director of the Center for Science and Culture there. He gave this presentation at the August 2022 Westminster Conference on Science and Theology. It turns out that this isn't the first time Christians have had to confront a culture where belief in intelligent design generated lots of pushback. In the early centuries of the Christian church, Christians faced eerily similar debates about intelligent design in nature. Opposition to the design of nature by God came from two main groups. The first were the Greco-Roman materialists. They were the Richard Dawkinses of their day. Believing that the world is intelligently designed can get you into trouble. But believing that nature actually supplies evidence that it was intelligently designed is, that's even worse. As long as you believe in intelligent design is just a matter of your personal faith, you might be tolerated. After all, lots of people believe strange things in private. I come from the Seattle area. And let me tell you, people there can believe almost anything. A few years ago, my sister-in-law had dinner with a young woman who was a student at the University of Washington, my alma mater. And this young woman had been told by her professor that when she smelled fresh-cut grass, she was actually smelling the anguished cry of the grass after it has been tortured by humans. <laughs> this woman was now troubled by the immorality of mowing the lawn. Now, nice people who personally believe strange things can make life enjoyable. They can be the spice of life. But as soon as you start claiming there is evidence for your belief, you start making people uncomfortable. Because you're suddenly making a claim about reality, and a claim about reality may have implications for how they're supposed to act or view the world. So if you claim not only that nature was intelligently designed, but that evidence in nature shows this, watch out, you're entering dangerous territory. Now in my experience, there are two kinds of people who tend to get really upset when you claim that there's evidence of intelligent design. The first is your stereotypical atheist or agnostic. You know, someone like, we've talked about again at this conference, but someone like evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins in England who asserts that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no, you know, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Among those who don't believe in God, Dawkins' view is far from exceptional. In fact, in a national survey we did a few years ago, 72% of American atheists said they agreed with this statement by Dawkins. We gave them the statement, they agreed with it. And there certainly are plenty of American college professors who say things very similar to Richard Dawkins. Uh, Stanford mathematician Keith Devlin declares, we are entirely alone. 
There is no God, no intelligent designer, no higher purpose to our lives. Or take this declaration from evolutionary psychologist David Barash at the University of Washington, who I actually debated years ago on a radio show when I was a lowly college undergrad. The more we know of evolution, the more unavoidable is the conclusion that living things, including human beings, including us, are produced by a natural, totally amoral process with no indication, not even a smidgen, no indication of a benevolent controlling creator. Unfortunately, religious skeptics in the scientific community aren't a small group, especially among the elites. Uh, Nearly 95% of biologists in the U.S. National Academy of Sciences identify themselves as atheists or agnostics. More than 60% of all college biology professors in America at two- and four-year institutions identify as atheists or agnostics. And nearly two-thirds of scientists at America's major research universities uh, identify themselves as atheists or agnostics. But it's not just the atheists and agnostics who get upset about intelligent design. Strangely enough, in my experience, the second kind of people who get the most worked up about those who think there's evidence of design in nature are Christians, especially Christian academics and theologians. I was a full-time college professor for 12 years. I taught at a liberal arts university in Seattle that historically identified as evangelical Christian. I quickly learned that if I wanted to get into trouble on campus, making it known that I thought there was evidence of intelligent design in nature was a great way to do it. That placed me on all kinds of blacklists, especially among the biologists and the theologians. If you believed in intelligent design on my campus, you were wise to keep it to yourself. And if you went beyond intelligent design, were actually, say, a, a biblical creationist, well then, you might just as well have left. I recall being at a lunch with some faculty colleagues where a biology professor was trashing a young woman, a young woman student, biology student, because she was a creationist. For this male professor, that was tantamount to heresy. And as I recall, he sort of basically boasted about trying to get this student to leave. Good riddance in his view. So now, how did my colleagues square their personal belief in God with a blind evolutionary process? Well, in the late 1990s, my colleagues had a favorite book they recommended. It was called Finding Darwin's God by uh, Brown University biology professor Ken Miller, a book that has been used at many, many Christian colleges and universities, maybe to teach your own children when they went to those schools. Miller identifies as a Christian, but he sharply rebukes anyone who thinks there's evidence that uh, life was intelligently designed. He insists that evolution is an undirected process, flatly denying that God guided the evolutionary process to achieve any particular result, including you and me, you know. Uh, indeed, Miller agrees that mankind's appearance on this planet was not preordained, that we are here as an afterthought, a minor detail, a happenstance in a history that might just as well have left us out. Sadly, this was not a unique view among Christian intellectuals who reject intelligent design, at least those that, that I've encountered. They often believe that God chose to create the world by setting up an undirected process over which he had no specific knowledge or control, and uh, certainly no foreknowledge of its particular outcomes. In a very real sense, God created a world that creates itself. In fact, uh, late Anglican theistic evolutionist John Polkinghorne said exactly that. An evolutionary universe is theologically understood as a creation allowed to make itself. Or 
former Vatican astronomer George Coyne, since deceased, similarly claimed that because evolution is undirected, not even God could know with certainty that human life would come to be. Now, a few years after I left academia, Francis Collins replaced Ken Miller as the science faith hero for many Christian college professors. Currently the acting White House science advisor uh, for President Biden, Collins was formerly the longtime director of the National Institutes of Health and probably the most well-known evangelical Christian scientist in America. Like Ken Miller, Collins is no fan of intelligent design, at least in biology. In 2006, he published a best-selling book called The Language of God. The title referred to the DNA code. Now, if you didn't read the book, you probably would assume that Collins was arguing that DNA was somehow intelligently designed by God. After all, it's a code, isn't it? And code requires a coder. Well, that was not, definitely not Collins' view. In fact, he asserts in the book, wrongly it turns out, that nearly half of the human genome is repetitive junk or as he put it, genetic flotsam and jetsam. While conceding that some might argue that these are actually functional elements placed there by a creator for good reason, I'm quoting him, but he ended up dismissing that explanation as highly unlikely. So in his view, DNA doesn't seem to be the language of God after all, unless perhaps God is illiterate. The only kind of intelligent design in biology that Collins suggests might be tolerable is the hidden variety. He offers the option of believing in a God who hides his actions in nature. According to this view, and I'm quoting him, uh, God could be completely and intimately involved in the creation of all species, while from our perspective, this would appear a random and undirected process. In other words, so long as you acknowledge that your belief in the design of life is simply personal and not grounded in empirical reality, that might be permissible. You can personally believe life was designed so long as you acknowledge that the evidence from nature makes it look like life was the product of a random and undirected process. Elsewhere, Collins has criticized Christians who questioned Darwinian evolution for peddling lies, his term, and promoting anti-scientific thinking, also his term. Uh, he has even warned that intelligent design is potentially threatening, his words again, to America's future. Now, maybe you are scratching your head right now. You probably get why an unrepentant atheist might not like people to think nature shows evidence of intelligent design, but why should Christians get so upset? Well, uh, is it because the Bible denounces the idea that there's evidence of intelligent design in nature? Far from it. However you interpret Genesis and many other biblical passages, it's hard to avoid a clear message of a God who lovingly and purposefully created the world and the universe. A God who's sovereign over nature. A God who knew exactly what he wanted to do and who accomplished it wisely and with foresight. A God who didn't delegate his creative activity to a blind and accidental process. If you want to appreciate just how radically unique this biblical view of God as creator was historically, you might want to read some creation accounts from various ancient pagan cultures. In many of these cultures, the creation of humans as well as the rest of nature was the result of accident and evil, not planning and wisdom. Just a couple of accounts. In a Polynesian account, a creeping plant withers and rots. Out of the rot springs worms. Out of the worms spring men and women. In a Babylonian account, creation is the result of the gods killing their mother, plunging a spear into her, bursting her belly and severing her inward parts, and clubbing her and smashing her skull. 
that sounds more like a news report of what happens on a Saturday night in some of our cities. It certainly doesn't fit with how the Bible describes God's role as creator or our role as observers of nature. Not only does the Bible assert that the world reflects God's super intelligent artistry and design, it also repeatedly suggests his design can be seen by human beings, even in our fallen condition. And you know, some of these passages have been talked about early in the conference, but in Psalms you have David asserting, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus, uh, often unremarked, uh, but refers to rainfall, lilies of the field, other features of nature as revealing to us something about God's care and wisdom for us and for nature. And then, of course, the passage that we've had several times already in the book of Romans, where Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So in sum, the Bible seems pretty clear that it's okay for a Christian not only to believe the world was intelligently designed by God, but to think that we can actually see evidence of his design in nature. So again, why are so many Christian intellectuals today upset about people who think they see evidence of design in life? Now, I'm sure there are a multiplicity of different reasons, but I have to say in my own experience of talking with people who, who share this view and this skepticism of design who are also Christians, one big one is the need to be accepted by your peers. Saying there's evidence of design in nature can be pretty treacherous when 95% of biologists in the National Academy of Sciences identify as atheists or agnostics. So if you are a Christian scientist or a professor and a fellow Christian scientist publicly expresses support for intelligent design, you naturally get upset because you fear you are going to be tarred with your fellow Christian's disreputable view. So of course you want them to shut up because if they don't, your peer group might shut you up. Now, it turns out that this isn't the first time Christians have had to confront a culture where belief in intelligent design generated lots of pushback. And I think we can learn from past experience. In the early centuries of the Christian church, Christians faced eerily similar debates about intelligent design in nature. In the early church, opposition to the design of nature by God came from two main groups. The first were the Greco-Roman materialists. They were the Richard Dawkinses of their day. Like Dawkins and other scientific materialists today, followers of the Greek thinkers Democritus and Epicurus, uh, denied outright that the wonders of nature reflected purposeful design. Instead, they claimed that everything that looked design was actually came about through a blind, impersonal process of chance collisions of mindless atoms that sort of self-assembled themselves into various things. Again, very much like the scientific materialist of today. The Roman poet, uh, so it wasn't just Greece, it was also Rome, the Roman poet Lucretius popularized Epicurean materialism in his epic poem On the Nature of Things, where he proclaimed that neither by design did the primal germs establish themselves as, as if by a keen act of mind. Instead, the atoms continued to collide Five, one against the other, and this random process, until at last they combined fortuitously into those great arrangements out of which this sum of things established is created. So how did early Christians respond to this barefaced denial of design by the materialist intellectuals of their day? Well, they weren't bashful. 
If you read the early church fathers, you find repeatedly and unapologetically they insisted that the design of nature was real and that it was observable from empirical evidence and reason. In the second century AD, we have Theophilus, the Bishop of Antioch, writing this to a correspondent. God cannot indeed be seen by human eyes, but is beheld and perceived through his providence and works. As any person, when he sees a ship on the sea rigged and in sail and making for the harbor, will no doubt infer there is a pilot in her who is steering her, so we must perceive that God is the governor or the pilot of the whole universe. Now, according to Theophilus, what are these works through which we can see the intelligent activity of God? He goes on to list the regularities of nature from astronomy, from the plant world, from the diverse species of animals, and what today we'd call ecosystems and and how functional they are. Okay, that was Theophilus. Maybe he was an outlier. Not really, if you read much of the early Christian thinkers. In the third century AD, we see Dionysius, the Bishop of Alexandria, writing, no object of any utility fitted to be serviceable is made without design or by mere chance, but is wrought by skill of hand and is contrived so as to meet its proper use. And again, he was arguing here against the Greco-Roman materialists who denied design in nature. And then we have, also in the third and fourth centuries, we have Lactentius, known as the Christian Cicero and an advisor to the Emperor Constantine. He wrote, for it is more credible to believe that matter was made by God because nothing can be made without mind, intelligence, and design. And he goes on to actually give an analogy to a house. If you had been brought up in a well, and I'm quoting from Lactentius, if you had been brought up in a well-built and ornamented house, but had never seen a workshop, would you have supposed that that house was not built by a man because you did not know how it was built? You would assuredly ask the same question about the house which you now ask about the world. By what hands, with what implements, man had contrived such great works? In some, early Christians flatly and unequivocally rejected claims that matter could organize itself without purposeful design, and they further insisted that nature supplied evidence of design. And if you want more of the references here and even more examples, uh, I'd refer you to chapter one in the book God and Evolution, which I think is on sale out there, or was, that's edited by Jay Richards, but I wrote the first two chapters, and in the first chapter I go in more depth on some of the things here. I should add that Jewish and Islamic thinkers held the same views, and there are strikingly similar passages in their works about discernible design in nature, not just that nature is designed, but that we can see it. Discussing the Jewish medieval thinker Maimonides, University of Chicago religious studies scholar Joel Kramer writes, Maimonides grasped the great divide between monotheists who believe that an intelligence guides the universe and Epicureans who believe that everything happens by chance. The argument continues nowadays between intelligent adherents of intelligent design and Darwinian atheists who believe in chance mutation. Interesting that he made that connection. As far as I know, I I doubt that he's favorable towards intelligent design, but he makes that connection. That's the same argument, and I think he's right. As far as Islamic thought is concerned, here's a passage from Islamic medieval philosopher Al-Ghazali. It should be apparent to anyone with the minimum of intelligence if he looks at the wonders in God's creation on earth and in the skies and at the wonders in animals and plants that this marvelous well-ordered system cannot exist without a maker who conducts it and a creator who plans and perfects it. 
So again, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim thinkers offered similar critiques of the materialist denial of design. But there was a second group, which also undercut arguments for design, in the early church at least, designed by God, the creator. This group, uh, we'll call them the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics considered themselves Christians, and in some sense, they certainly believed that the world reflected God's purposes, but they also did their best to detach the natural world from a, a direct result of God's specific intentions and designs. What became is that Gnostic heresy was quite complicated, involved a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different people who didn't share all the same beliefs, and so I certainly am not going to do full justice to it now. For our purposes today, all I'm going to do is hone in on just a couple of key beliefs that many of the Gnostics shared about God and the natural world, because those are the ones that I think are most directly relevant to some of the debates we have today. First, these Gnostics denied that the world was created good. They thought that matter was sinful, and uh, that the material world was flawed and evil to begin with. Second, because the world was evil, they denied that God actually created the world. Instead, they thought that the world was created by another entity, usually called the Demiurge, an idea that they drew largely from pagan philosophy. According to the Gnostics, the Demiurge acted on his own and even assumed the place of God, but was in fact sort of acting on his own. Uh, according to the early Christian writer Hippolytus, the Gnostics believe that the Demiurge knows nothing at all, but is, according to them, devoid of understanding and silly and is not conscious of what he's doing or working at. He himself imagines that he evolves the creation of the world out of himself, whence he commenced saying, I am God, and beside me there is no other. So according to the Gnostics, our natural world doesn't directly reflect the wisdom and intelligent design of an all-powerful God. Uh, God is at best an indirect actor, delegating creation to another actor who's ignorant of what he's doing and ignorant of God's purposes. In some larger sense, you can maintain that the Demiurge fulfilled God's purposes because God appointed him, but God ultimately is not responsible and nature doesn't really reflect God's specific directions. Now, does this sound familiar? Well, to me, it sounds an awful lot like some Christians today who bristle at intelligent design. Like the ancient Gnostics, they reassign the creative direction over nature from God to a third party. Their demiurge, if you will, is Darwinian evolution, an unguided process of natural selection acting on random variations. God may create the process, but this undirected process, but he's not responsible for how it turns out specifically, and it produces things that he may not have foreseen or specifically planned. It needs to be said that early Christian leaders had as little patience for the Gnostic demotion of God as they did with the arguments of the materialists of their day. In fact, the Orthodox Christian rejection of the Gnostic view that distance nature from God's foresight and direction forms a key part of the background for the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We know this how? We know it because of the writings of the early Christian bishop Irenaeus, who lived around 120 to 202 AD. There's some um, differences of opinion as exactly when he was born and exactly when he died. Irenaeus is said to have studied under Polycarp, who himself was supposed to have been a disciple of the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John. So Irenaeus' testimony about why John wrote the, his gospel is worth taking seriously. According to Irenaeus, the gospel of John was written in part to counter the teaching of an early Gnostic teacher known as Serinthus. In the words of Irenaeus, 
Serinthus taught that the world was not made by the primary God, but by a certain power far separated from him and at a distance from that principality who is supreme over the universe and ignorant of him who is above all. In other words, nature doesn't reflect God's intelligent design. It reflects the working of another power who acts in ignorance of God and his intentions. It was to counter this idea that the first chapter of John insists that all things were made through Christ who was God himself, rather than through a secondary entity like the Demiurge. The idea that nature reflected the intelligent design of an all-knowing God was controversial at the time of the early church because of both the Gnostics, but also because of the Greco-Roman materialist. It flew in the face of conventional wisdom of both the materialist and the Gnostics, but the earliest Christians stood firm. Indeed, when Christian leaders accepted the original Nicene Creed in 325 AD, they began with the words that made their rejection of both the materialist and Gnostic views of nature utterly clear. And this might be a slightly different version than you use in your church if you use this because it's the 325 AD version, not the little later. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. All things visible and invisible. All things Gnostics, all things Greco-Roman materialists. Because early Christians stood firm, their ideas bore fruit. Fruit that I say we still live with the benefits from even today. In particular, the belief that the world reflected the intelligent design of a supreme intelligence, a master artist, if you will, became one of the inspirations for modern science, as has been discussed earlier today. Science assumes that nature is not a chaotic mishmash, that we're not ripped out of the belly of a pagan god and part of a fratricide and just all uh, crime and chaos. It assumes, science assumes that nature is a well-coordinated system, and that's why we can try to rationally understand it. Much of science, even today, relies on this operating assumption that natural systems behave and are put together as if they were designed for a purpose. Even scientists who reject or say they reject intelligent design, when they are in the lab, they're not, because they're acting as if what they are studying was designed for a purpose. That's the only way they can explicate their inner workings, by making that assumption. Now, the belief that nature as a whole was the product of intelligent design also meant, in particular, that humans had significance because they were part of that super-rational order. They weren't just an afterthought. Their special capacities of reason and creativity and morality were not flukes of a mindless process. They were intended. They reflected the image of God. This idea that humans, uh, and not just nature, but that, that uh, reflected intelligent design, led to a very different view of the human person than that was really dominated uh, the, the view in the Greco-Roman era. Uh, the, the Christian view of the human person, the biblical view of the human person, encouraged the, at the end of things like infanticide, uh, the abolition of slavery, uh, it encouraged the elevation of women, it uh, encouraged the founding of hospitals to save the sick, and efforts to care for the poor. All these things were radically countercultural uh, in the Greco-Roman Empire, where Christianity arose. Uh, they were born of an equally countercultural conception of nature <laughs> that was based on intelligent design. And I guess, as I bring to a close, I'd like to say, if you don't think that our understanding of nature matters, 
or maybe you have friends who don't think that our understanding of nature matters for how we treat each other, consider two views of the human person today that are based on radically different views of nature. The first view is expressed by anthropologist Scott Atron. He says this, human beings are accidental and incidental products of the material development of the universe, almost wholly irrelevant and readily ignored in any general description of its, the universe's functioning. Beyond Earth, there is no intelligence that is watching out for us or cares. We are alone. How's that for an inspiring worldview? The second view of humans comes from a former Pope Benedict. We are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. Is it really true that it doesn't matter which of these two views of our universe you adopt? That either view will inspire the exact same results for your life and for our culture? I don't think so, and I actually don't think you do either, and I think those who say that they that it doesn't matter if they really had to think about it would be hard-pressed to say that it doesn't matter. And if you understand why these two views matter, why these two different views matter, and choosing between them matters, you've basically understood, in a nutshell, why the debate over intelligent design matters. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. That was Dr. John West speaking on the debate over design in the early church, food for serious thought in a talk he gave at the August 2022 Westminster Conference on Science and Faith. We appreciate your interest in these discussions, and we hope you'll invite your friends to join in along with you. Who knows? Chances are good they'll find it food for serious thought, too. Until next time, for ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.